Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to the final hour of Africa Rise and Shine this morning. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Amanda Machaka and Tabi Solohoko. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Mali's popular opposition movement rejects a charter for a transition government backed by the ruling army officers who overthrew President Ibrahim Boubacar Keita in a coup last month. Leader of the Economic Freedom Fighters says they are opposed to the governing party's abuse of state resources. And in economics news, former Nissan executive Greg Kelly pleads not guilty to charges he helped ex-boss Carlos Ghosn under rep- report income as his trial began in Tokyo. But first up, the news with Amanda Machaka. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thanks, Lulu. Good morning. The Egyptian Health Ministry has reported 168 new coronavirus cases and 13 deaths, raising the total number since the beginning of the outbreak in the country to 101,177 cases and 5,661 deaths. Since early last month, the daily number of new cases dropped below 200, except for the last week in August, registering a record drop in daily reported cases on August 22, with only 89 new infections the lowest daily tally since April. Egypt reported the first confirmed case of the novel virus on February 14, while the first fatality was recorded on March 8. Over 30,000 healthcare workers across South Africa have contracted coronavirus. 257 of these infections resulted in COVID-19-related fatalities. Zoleka Kotashe has more. The Eastern Cape saw 8,454 healthcare workers contract the coronavirus, the highest record in the country. Gauteng follows with 8,148 and Guazul Natal with 6,062. The province also recorded the highest number of healthcare workers succumbing to the disease at 69. The country has seen a number of protests from healthcare workers demanding adequate PPE since the outbreak of the pandemic in the country in March. The Department of Health has emphasized that healthcare workers should not work without the necessary PPEs. The Constitutional Court in Cote d'Ivoire has banned former President Laurent Gbagbo and former Prime Minister Guillaum Soro from running for presidential elections next month. The Electoral Commission had already said that anyone with a criminal record would be disqualified. Both men have convictions. The United States has imposed visa restrictions on a number of people in Nigeria. They are accused of undermining democratic principles ahead of elections in Edo and Ondo states. The State Department says the individuals who have not been named had operated with impunity at the expense of the Nigerian people. It has urged all parties, including the security forces, to ensure free and fair elections. 
The Algerian government has announced it is lifting the ban on hunting imposed more than 25 years ago because of an insurgency that was raging at the time. The ban led to a surge in the population of boars damaging agricultural land. Authorized hunting will now be able to take place for the next six months. The ban on hunting other animals and birds has also been lifted. Police in Panama say they have found a mass grave which they believe contains remains of people killed by a religious sect in the west of the country. The latest discovery follows the arrest earlier this month of the alleged leader of a sect calling itself the New Light of God. Five other people were also detained. In January this year, police found that the sect had been preying on local villagers performing violent exorcisms, including torture. And in sports, South African National Rugby Sevens team, the Blitzbox, have been handed their 2019-2020 HSBC World Rugby Sevens Series silver medals by the South African Rugby's Deputy President Francois Davids in Stellenbosch, Cape Town. Springbok Sevens coach Neil Powell says they can now start looking towards their next goals for 2021 series and the Tokyo Olympics. Blitzbox captain Seviwe Soizwapi pays tribute to his predecessors. Uh, guys like Phillips Neyman and Carl Brown who've, who've been uh, the team captains before myself have actually played a massive role in in helping me and, and showing me the ropes in, in how how I should lead and um, just good tips from them. I think they've they've been instrumental to the team and they've been great leaders themselves. For Channel Africa News, I'm Amanda Machaka. Headlines at 7.30. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Amanda. It's 7.06 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Mali's popular opposition movement has rejected a charter for a transition government backed by the ruling army officers who overthrew President Ibrahim Boubacar Keita in a coup last month. The military government backed a charter for an 18-month transition government after a three-day forum with political parties and civil society representatives. The charter Charter also proposed the transition be led by either a military or civilian leader, who, which leaves open the possibility that military officers who seize power could remain at the helm for another 18 months until elections are organized. Malian journalist Mohamed Salah has more. It's important to notice that it's not the whole opposition, the M5 RFP, who rejects the charter. It's just a part of this movement who reject the charter. Because we saw the statement, the movement uh, set out, the, the statement was signed only by one leader of the movement. Usually, the statements are signed uh, by at least three leaders. So this, the, this part who rejects the charter say that the charter did not reflect the conclusion of the discussion taken part, uh, the discussion that Malian had during the three days of concertation. And another part of the same group say that the answer recognized themselves in the charter. They acknowledge the charter and they they, 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 they sustain the, the army. 
So it's not the whole movement who rejects, it's a part of the movement which rejects. So it's a kind of division inside the movement. You're talking about the divisions within the uh, opposition coalition, the movement. Uh, um, a part of uh, that movement says that uh, the discussions took place in an environment of intimidation, anti-democratic and unfair uh, practices worthy of another era. What does uh, this mean? Has uh, that particular group elaborated further in terms of what they mean when they talk talk about an environment of intimidation and anti-democratic and unfair practices? I think that uh, the discussion was held on without any intimidation. They were free, frank, honest discussion among Malian. Malian discuss Malian problem and the movement of 5 June and 5 RFP military uh, civil society, all al Malian and all Malian have the same rights uh, in front of the law. So they discussed the problem, but what, why they were, why they was uh, uh, agree about is what they want, what they need wasn't seen in the final document because the M5 RFP, the opposition, wanted to be privileged in this transition. They wanted to be a keeper, stakeholder of the gentle who took the power. And the discussion didn't reflect what they want. It's just this point. So some of them agreed about the final document. Some of them didn't agree about the final document. But the document was applauded by the people in the room during uh, after the, the consultations what is going to happen now we know that ECOWAS is due to meet tomorrow which makes things even more interesting isn't it we already know that ECOWAS has taken a position on this matter it wants a civilian leader to be appointed by tomorrow what do you think is going to happen tomorrow when ECOWAS meets with the army representatives as well as members of the Position. Tomorrow meeting is important and it's decisive because uh, ECOWAS is going to meet with the Genta. So Malian already have decided what they want. Uh, they say that uh, the transition can be led either by a military or a Genta. So it's to ECOWAS now to, to approve what Malian have decided and uh, help Malian to set up the transition. Malian has already decided. So now what will be decided tomorrow by ECOWAS, it's very, very important. And what Malian are looking for now is the end of sanction. The embargo ECOWAS has did against Mali should be ended as soon as possible. And all Malian is are on tomorrow's meeting hoping that ECOWAS will end the sanction and help Mali to set up a transition by respecting what have been decided among Malians. But the ECOWAS itself uh, is not being taken serious, is it? Uh, because we know that uh, even some of the proposals that it made uh, last month with regards to the roadmap have not been uh, taken serious. Do you think its intervention tomorrow will be taken serious? It should be taken serious because it is not what the gentle wants. 
This is not what the Genta want. It's what Malian want. Because the concertation has gathered Malian, civil society, political party, trade union. It's gathered Malian from the north, the center, the south. Every Malian came to discuss about the challenges Mali, Mali is facing, about what we need in the transition, how we need it, and how we will get it. That was the, some points discussed during the three days of concertation. So it, it wasn't decided by the Genta. ECOWAS don't want that Genta decided themselves to, to stay on the power. No, they called to Malian people to decide. And this decision is from Malian people. And Malian hope that ECOWAS will accept it. That's uh, Mohamed Salah, a Malian journalist on the line from the capital, Bamako, speaking to Kumbela Munjalele. Leader of South Africa's opposition, the economic freedom fighters, Julius Malema, says although they are not against the ruling ANC's mission to Zimbabwe last week, they are opposed to the party's abuse of state resources. He says the Defence and Military Veterans Department must invoice the ANC for using an Air Force jet for the trip, which was meant to engage with Zimbabwe's ZANU-PF on the recent political unrest in that country. Malema and MP Mbuyisenin Tlozi appeared briefly at the RAND Magistrate's Court for an assault case, which was postponed to next month. Abongile Dumako reports. An appearance by EFF leader Julius Malima and MP Mbuyisen Ndlozi at the Randberg Magistrate Court in Johannesburg turned into a political squabble between the ANC and the EFF. Malima says the EFF will ask SANDF to invoice the ANC after the party delegation travelled with Defence Minister Nosi Viwe Mapisa Ngagula in an Air Force jet to Zimbabwe. The ANC delegation went to meet ZANU-PF representatives following allegations of human rights violations in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic and lockdown. SANDF spokesperson Sipiwe Lamini has confirmed that Mapisa Ngagula has submitted a report on the issue. This after President Cyril Ramaphosa had given her 48 hours in which to give reasons why she shared a government flight with a senior delegation of the political party. Malema says they support any interventions to address problems in Zimbabwe. Malema says the challenges in Zimbabwe need to be urgently addressed. But to use the state resources by the leadership of the ANC, I think it was irresponsible. And uh, we shouldn't be too dramatic about it. Uh, We will ask the Secretary of Defense to invoice the ANC so the ANC pays and they they don't repeat that mistake but going to zimbabwe even under lockdown uh, regulations it is necessary malema says it will take the youth of zimbabwe to stand up for what is right so that the economic situation can be resolved in that country zimbabweans must take a lead themselves particularly young people from zimbabwe we suggested to them they need to blockade the bed bridge a border gate for two days if we can blockade border gate of zimbabwe for two days there will not be toilet paper in zimbabwe and the people of zimbabwe will see the need to rise against mnangagwa's failure to lead them properly meanwhile malima and Jose will be back at the Randberg magistrates court on the 13th of next month they were accompanied by party deputy president floyd shibambu 
and General Secretary Marshal Lamini. Malima Ndozi allegedly assaulted a policeman during struggle icon Winnie Matigizela Mandela's funeral in 2018. Malima says he did not understand why he should be in court during the COVID-19 pandemic. It was unnecessary for us to come today uh, because uh, we are going through a pandemic as a country. And therefore, any court that requests us to appear without necessarily a trial is risking our lives and the lives of ordinary people. Because you will know that as public figures, when we come here, a lot of people will want to interact with us and we don't know who's in a good state of health and who's not. And President Cyril Ramaphosa is yet to respond to the report from Minister Nosif Vuema Pisa Ngagula on the use of an Air Force jet to transport an ANC delegation led by Secretary General Ace Mahashule to Zimbabwe last week. I'm Abongile Tumago in Johannesburg. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Cabinet has decided to place the entire country on alert level 2, with effect from midnight on Monday, the 17th of August 2020. Alert level 2, in terms of our risk-adjusted strategy in dealing with the pandemic, means that there is moderate COVID-19 spread of the virus with a relatively high health system readiness. The move to level 2 means that we can remove nearly all of the restrictions on the resumption of economic activity across most industries. Channel Africa. For your latest update on the novel coronavirus COVID-19 for Channel Africa in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, I'm Coletta Wanjohi. Once contaminated, hands can transfer the virus to your eyes, nose or mouth. From there, the virus can enter your body and make you sick. At 7.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The National Education, Health and Allied Workers Union, NAHAO in South Africa, says it will continue with lunch hour pickets ahead of a planned full-blown strike both in the public and private sector over a number of issues. The union says the decision follows President Sil Ramaphosa's failure to meet the seven-day deadline to respond to their demands, which expired on Thursday last week. Chris Mabuya reports. The union's leadership held a special National Executive Committee meeting in Cape Town at the weekend to plan the way forward. Nehao General Secretary Zola Sapeta says the withdrawal of labor power remains a strategy and tactical approach to defend collective bargaining, the right to strike and to protect its members in general. Sapeta says this follows government's failure to respond to their demands, which include safer working conditions and salary increases for public servants. Sapeta says the union has, however, not abandoned the arbitration process and will remain in contact with the president's office and meet with various ministers to highlight their demands. The National Union will continue to have sectoral meetings with different ministers of different uh, departments on all our demands. These meetings include uh, the following ministers, health, employment and labor, social development, higher education and training, science and technology, 
and the Public Service and Administration, including SASA and Parastatars. Sapeta says the government's failure to meet their demands might affect the union's relationship with the governing ANC. He says Nehao will arrange an urgent meeting with the ANC leadership to discuss the organizational implications, which Sapeta says might force them to consider other options. The reason why we supported the ANC, we are told that the ANC, as a liberation movement, will produce a government who listens to its people, particularly who values workers, because workers are the producers of this economy. So one just to go to the ANC and say that um, one of the downfalls is to ignore and uh, disregard workers of this country. It will not be easy to convince our members again for their support. Sapeta says another special Nehau NEC meeting will be held in two weeks' time to map the way forward. Nehau has also raised concern regarding the safety of its members, including the lack of adequate provision of personal protective equipment in provinces. Sapeta says a survey titled Verification of Occupational Health Services and Committees in Public and Private Health Facilities in South Africa has been commissioned. The survey will be conducted until the 16th of December. I'm Chris Mabuya in Cape Town. Government mortuaries in South Africa are starting to take strain as the funeral undertaker strike gains momentum. Thousands of undertakers embarked on a three-day national strike over their working conditions and remuneration. They're also demanding the outsourcing of mortuary facilities. In some parts of the country, including Guazul-Natal, non-striking businesses were intimidated, as Nongulego Lope reports. The first day of the undertaker's strike saw a number of businesses being forced to close their doors. In Durban, members of the Unification Task Team stormed onto business properties of those who were operating and demanded that they shut down. Police had to intervene. Ndabeng Ngomo, who is the owner of one of the funeral parlors that were targeted by striking members, says they were saved by police. While we were doing business as usual, a group of about 50 members of the UTT, our premises, and demanded us to shut down the business. And they, they held all sorts of uh, insults. And, uh, and abuse to me as a person and the owner of the business and to my staff personnel as well. And uh, had it not been the intervention of the SAPS members who were present at the time in my premises, who knows, maybe they, they would have uh, attacked me. We have already opened a case of uh, intimidation and criminal injuria with the local SAPS some crematoriums, like the Clare Estates Umgeni Hindu Crematorium Society in Durban, were also affected as they could not operate today. Board member of the Crematorium Society, Satish Dupilia. Our job is to service the community when they come up for cremations, etc. Now, we are in a unique situation where, although we service the public and their families, we don't actually have contact with them when they make a booking. They make a booking with the undertakers, who then book our facility on behalf of the family. So if the undertakers are on strike, and this applies to all the undertakers who service the state and the crematorium society, then we are not getting any bookings. So, example, we've had no call for bookings on Monday. So 
therefore we are closed. Meanwhile, the Department of Health also raised concerns as government motorists countrywide are starting to take the strain. George Lolo, the Gauteng facilitator, says the removal of around 800 bodies in the province is likely to be delayed. We have had no removals uh, of bodies across the whole of Gauteng, except for a few places where undertakers who may not agree with us may have gone ahead and done their removals. This has been a peaceful protest. We did not intend to embark on any violence and we remain in that same mode. We are grateful for everyone who has cooperated, whether they agreed with our protest action or not. But I think that in general, there's been solidarity in the funeral industry. In Limpopo, the MEC for Health, Popi Ramatuba, says this strike poses a huge public health risk, especially now when the country is dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. When the, the palace take this particular decision, they must also bear in mind that uh, that service, you might say, it will not uh, endanger the life because the life is already lost. But let me tell you, it is endangering the lives of us who are still existing because it is very critical to say we must meet if it is 72 hours to conduct that burial, whether it's as a result of COVID. We have given made those regulations because we know once it passed that 72 hours, it becomes a health hazard. Those who are existing and it becomes a risk. But despite all the hardship that come with the strike, UTT's convener, Muzi Lengwa, says that they will continue with their action. There is a law that says there should be no interaction between myself and my client. How do you explain that? Now, Old Mushwal is an undertaker. Old Mushwal is an underwriter. They have my book with them. I give them the money every month. Then in return, I must be out of the picture and so that Otmushwal can do both uh, the funeral and insurance. It will never happen. The members who are on strike say they're hoping that as the strike enters its second day, no funeral parlor or undertaker will be operating until government answers their demand. in Durban. September marks Blood Cancer Awareness Month. This annual global campaign is dedicated to encouraging greater understanding about the importance of the diagnosis, treatment and research of the multiple types of blood cancer. Blood cancer continues to impact millions of people worldwide, but the symptoms can be vague and hard to spot. More from Cole Cameroon, founder and CEO of the non-profit organization Igazi Foundation, the only hematology service in sub-Saharan Africa. You know, there's always cancer. And of course, cancer, as people adopt unhealthier lifestyles, of course, cancer grows. Blood cancer is problematic. Despite the aggressiveness of some forms of blood cancer, is there help available? Are you seeing a rise in survival rates? Yes. Absolutely. We're finding that in hematology, which is the the fancy word for blood doctors, the blood science, it's very cutting edge. So we're seeing a a lot more interesting things coming out. It started with chemotherapy years ago, before it started in other cancers, then stem cell transplants, which are very, can be very successful in some uh, blood cancer treatments, and now immunotherapy which is very exciting. What kind of services does the Igazi Foundation provide and how are you adapting your services to improve care for people with blood cancer? Absolutely. Elizabeth, we started in the Eastern Cape, which has a high incidence of 
blood cancers in 2010 because there was no blood cancer unit here at all. Our patients had to go to Cape Town or to Johannesburg if they'd give us space. So we started raising awareness and advocacy and working with the Eastern Cape Department of Health to make a blood cancer unit possible, which we did in 2013. And subsequent to that, we've helped do a child's unit. Pediatric cancers have a lot of blood cancer. And recently in KZN, we've redone the chemo room at King Edward Hospital in Durban. So we concentrate on facilities for patients because that is overlooked. A lot of NGOs concentrate one-on-one patients. But we always believe that without a facility, how do you treat them? Tell us about the major challenge that you face as a foundation at the moment. Well, of course, like all NGOs, we're all feeling the pinch of, of COVID and the downturn in the economy. And also awareness, because people say, what is hematology? And we, we say, well, it's the study of blood diseases and blood cancers and blood anemias. That's an interesting one. Can I tell you something interesting, Elizabeth? Mm. Do you know the biggest disease in Africa? I'll tell you, it's anemia. Now, anemia is the lack of iron in the blood, and people are slightly immunocompromised, and that makes them susceptible to malaria. It's an inherent weakness. 46% of Africa, Africans suffer from anemia. That is a blood disease. Before I let you go, how can people get involved or support the work that you do? Yes, please have a look at our website, igazi.africa. Send us an email to info at igazi.africa, and we'd love to hear from you. If we can help, we will. That's uh, Cole Cameroon, founder and CEO of the Igazi Foundation in South Africa, speaking to Elizabeth Lidicha. National Coronavirus Command Council has decided to enforce a nationwide lockdown. A global pandemic, COVID-19. Several countries have scaled up their responses and put in place strict controls, including South Africa. Channel Africa Broadcasting from South Africa will continue to bring you news and current affairs during this period whereby a 21-day lockdown is effective. We will keep you updated and informed during this period as we bring you news and current affairs from an African perspective. It's 7.30 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our headlines up next with Amanda Machaka. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thanks, Lulu. Good morning. In the headlines, the Egyptian Health Ministry has reported 168 new coronavirus cases and 13 deaths, raising the total number since the beginning of the outbreak in the country to 101,177 cases and 5,661 deaths. 
The Constitutional Court in Cote d'Ivoire has banned former President Laurent Gbagbo and former Prime Minister Guillaume Soro from running for presidential elections next month. And the United States has imposed visa restrictions on a number of people in Nigeria who are accused of undermining democratic principles ahead of elections in Edo and Ondo states. I'll have details on these and more stories at the top of the hour. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Amanda. Research conducted by the Road Traffic Management Corporation in collaboration with the South African Medical Research Council and the University of South Africa shows that driver alcohol intoxication accounts for 27.1% of fatal crashes in the country, a figure considerably higher than current estimates. This is projected to cost the country's economy 18.2 billion South African rands annually. The various bodies investigate the role of driver alcohol intoxication as a risk factor in fatal road traffic crashes in the country for the period 2016 to 2018. Research indicates that uh, drive the risk for crashes involving other road users, such as pedestrians and other motorists, increases significantly when a driver is drunk. Pedestrians are three times likely to die in a crash where a driver was intoxicated. UNISA's Professor Ashley Faniker is a part of a team that prepared this study and spoke to Samora Mangesi about the findings. The report was commissioned by the RTMC, the Road Traffic Management Corporation, and um, between the Medical Research Council and UNISA, we investigated traffic crashes for 2016 to 2018, but the focus was especially on crashes caused by intoxication. So, so driver caused crashes where the driver was intoxicated. And, of course, there's been a great deal of concern about the role of alcohol. Uh, alcohol, uh, of course, affects um, judgment. It affects your ability to respond. Uh, it affects um, driving performance. And so it wasn't that much of a surprise that we identified that, that more than a quarter of all crashes uh, where it was suspected, where the driver was identified as being a cause of the crash, that a quarter or 27% of those were, were because of the influence of alcohol. And that is, that is quite significant. It's likely even to be higher than that. Uh, but it is, it is a significant part of, of the driver crashes taking place uh, that, that so many of them are because of alcohol. Now, the report paints a dire picture regarding the levels of alcohol intoxication as a risk factor for fatal road traffic crashes in South Africa. Please take us through the findings. We found that, that many of these crashes, uh, there are big concentrations at night. Nighttime is, is one of the greatest risk factors, along with weekend crashes, weekend, including long weekends. And then in South Africa, we found crashes Crashes influenced by alcohol spread across the year. And so these are not restricted just to um, vacation periods, to the December or the Easter vacation periods, but they are high levels right through. Um, so in terms of when they are occurring, they, they are quite clearly defined 
periods of the year when risk is the greatest. And these seem to be associated with when the greatest uh, uh, recreational drinking takes place um, in the evenings, over weekends. But interestingly, in terms of the year period across the year, we also found that pedestrians were most vulnerable whenever, whenever there was a crash and the driver had been identified as intoxicated. We found that uh, in most cases, the person that would be injured, fatally injured, would be a pedestrian. In fact, three times more than any other kind of crash. The drivers are often men. And in other crashes where they're not pedestrians, the victims are often women as passengers. The, the findings lend themselves to different kinds of actions, uh, different kinds of enforcement, especially during night times, over weekends, not just during vacation periods, but also non-vacation periods. And these, these are important. Uh, it's not the only strategy that should be put into place because drive uh, drinking is so common, it's such a common social activity, we have to be mindful that not everyone can take Ubers uh, and so on. And so there needs to be improvements in terms of the public transport sector, uh, not just, for, of course, for, for, well, for everyone in the country, but this, this would be also to provide kinds of programs that can ensure that drivers who drink do not get into the cars and drive, that there's alternative means for them. Uh, what does the report say about South African drivers and their levels of compliance in terms of responsible driving? The report doesn't talk to, to compliance, but I, I guess by implication, um, we, we are able to deduce that, that despite the legislation, which limits uh, the amount of alcohol, um, uh, 0.05 grams per, per milliliter, um, for public drivers and then for professional drivers, the requirement is even stricter. But by deduction that there's so many crashes, it's, it, it does seem to be that compliance is not what it should be. And, and there has to be a greater discussion in terms of South Africans and their, their, their drinking, and drinking behaviors and drinking responsibilities. There, there probably has been changes over the years in terms of using Uber or using designated drivers, uh, for example. But it, it would seem that, that those trends which are positive have as yet not gone far enough. And so it's clear that there are still many uh, drivers who, who do drive despite having been drinking uh, just before that. Do you think stronger laws could, could discourage these high levels of alcohol intoxication and ultimately reduce the number of fatal crashes? It's, of course, a very current discussion now, but it's, it's quite a complex one, the, the issue of reducing the level even further, because um, you would have heard that, the, that there are issues in terms of, of how one can enforce it, whether the instruments... Uh, are reliable to detect to detect um, very very low levels. Um, people have spoken about uh, difficulties because of, for example, the slightly raised levels you have as a result of taking medication and so on. And so, I would argue um, that that part of the solution is around better enforcement, but there has to be part that that allows South Africans to discuss uh, drinking 
and responsibilities around drinking. And then also in terms of the, the systems that can take drunk drivers off the road, whether it is right at the point of where drinking takes place in a pub or in a shabin, or whether it is through even, even greater kind of um, use of roadblocks, the approach has to be multi, has, has to have multiple foci. It's in part only going to be, and we don't know how effective it can be with even stricter enforcement, although other countries have done this uh, with, with mixed results. Uh, but but I, I would argue that that would be part of the solution. That's UNISA's Professor Ashley Fanikerk, who is part of a team that prepared this study speaking to Samora Mangesi. WHO recommends 30 minutes of physical activity a day for adults and one hour a day for children. If your local or national guidelines allow it, go outside for a walk, a run or a ride, and keep a safe distance from others. If you can't leave the house, find an exercise video online, dance to music, do some yoga, or walk up and down the stairs. Avoid touching your eyes, nose and mouth to slow the spread of the coronavirus. For more information on the coronavirus, visit the World Health Organization site at www.who.int. For your latest update on the novel coronavirus or COVID-19, for Channel Africa, I'm Arthur Skopo in Lusaka, Zambia. If you develop fever, cough, and difficulty breathing, seek medical advice promptly, as this may be due to a respiratory infection or other serious condition. At 7.41 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's Audio Bouquet Channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. A digital transformation company, Schneider Electric, has announced the top eight teams for the global student competition called Schneider Go Green. Students from all around the globe were invited to submit their innovative energy management management and automation bold ideas for a smarter and more sustainable future. More on this competition from Bali Kumalo, Talent Acquisition Specialist at Schneider Electric. So this year we actually celebrated um, 10 years of the Go Green competition globally. Mm. Um, and as an organization, we are leading in, in digital transformation of energy management and automation. So we're continuously looking for ideas that will shape the future of the industry we operate in and the company as well. I mean, the competition looks for students around the world to put their ideas and skills to test. So we've got categories that um, the students can um, choose in terms of a topic um, for the idea. And we just give them the freedom to really express. And, and the students actually you know, respond quite greatly to the competition because it's something that's not done. Um, and it's a global competition where you can actually you know, compete against different markets in different countries. So um, let's talk about uh, the top eight teams that have been selected. Um, what yeah. sort of criteria um, was used to select uh, this uh, um, uh, uh, creme de la creme, if you like? Yeah. 
So as an organization, I mean, we focus a lot on diversity and inclusion, right? Therefore, we opened up the competition for anyone to apply. However, when we looked at the ideas of, of the top 18 candidates, it was simply to look at what idea is sustainable for the environment, sustainable for energy, um, sustainable for, um, you know, the future in terms of creating um, sustainability in, in engineering principles. So that was really the criteria. And um, one of our core values as an organization is Dare to Disrupt. So the more disruptive, you know, your idea was, the more prominent it was um, from, from the panel. Now, we're aware that um, a team that won uh, first runner-up for Middle East and Africa is actually from Nigeria. Where are the uh, other seven teams from? Um, so we've got um, representation from Colombia, we've got representation from Egypt, we've got representation from Turkey, from Morocco. So it's from different regions um, because it is a global mm. platform. But we were quite excited. I mean, as Anglophone, which is the English-speaking countries that in Africa that I um, am part of, the region I'm a part of, to have Nigeria mm-hmm. as the first runner-up. I mean, these students went through the typical adversities that African students would go through, sure. where network wasn't connecting. The um, Daniel had to present on his own because Esther's network was failing. I mean, we had um, roosters chirping in the background. You know, it was so mm-hmm. authentic. And, and we really are proud of, of Esther and Daniel. Now, the finalists, um, Bali, are now gearing up for the global digital finals. Um, what are they expected to do in these finals? Um, so they would have gone through a lot of mentorship that was supported or provided rather by Schneider um, mm-hmm. Electric for them to be able to prepare for, this, for the um, finales. So they would have gone through all the preparation, pre-preparations and in terms of presenting their, um, their project. And it would be similar in terms of the, the rounds that they've gone through where they just present the, um, the idea. And if there was any areas of improvement in terms of presenting it, they would have gotten that support from their mentors and the Go Green support team. Um, so it was. I think it was quite challenging because you deal from a regional base and then now you're dealing at a global level, you know. So um, we really had to support them in making sure that they're mentally ready, emotionally ready, because we know from a technicality perspective, you know, they are great candidates with great skills. And I think just as a parting point is just to let people know that as Schneider Electric, we definitely make sure that life is on everywhere for Mm -hmm. everyone at at any moment. So if people are keen on applying for the 2021 Go Green competition, they should visit the website gogreen.se.com and they can then register and to make sure um, to have one female and one male participant in the team because we're thriving to get more women in engineering and for women to, Mm -hmm. like Rosie said, to take up space in society. And this is just our way on us contributing to give women a platform in engineering. That's Mbali Kumalo, a talent acquisition specialist at Schneider Electric on the line speaking to Zikonamiso. More businesses in the tourism industry in South Africa's northwest province are expected to retrench workers as they have been hard hit during the COVID-19 lockdown. This emerged during the provincial launch of the tourism month held at Madikwe Game Reserve near Rustenburg. Zebulon Maine reports. According to a study by the Northwest Department of Economic Development in 2018, the tourism sector contributes over 7% to the provincial GDP. However, since the country implemented regulations to curb the spread of COVID-19, many sectors, including tourism, have been negatively affected. Since the introduction of Alert Level 2, many workers in the sector were expecting September, which has been designated as Tourism Month, to bring better prospects for them. 
but this has not happened and more workers may soon be laid off. About 33 lodges at the Madikwe Game Reserve are among businesses expected to retrench workers. Madikwe Game Reserve manager Kiabetu Muremi elaborates. Unfortunately, even after lockdown, there were some other challenges here and there, whereby, um, unfortunately, for intra-provincial, we still didn't have enough guests that were coming in. Even for now, we don't actually really have a lot of guests coming in. So assistant for now, a lot of lodges are actually saying they might be retrenching their staff. And then uh, already some of the staff have been put on layout, which means uh, they might not be coming to work very soon. But some business owners remain hopeful that Level 2 will give their business a chance to recover. Rob Trotman is a member of the N12 Treasure Route. There's not that much cash in the economy. So people in the beginning bought, but it slowed down quite a lot. And we'll see what happens in the next months to come. As soon as cash comes into the economy and it can turn, turn a bit faster, I think um, we should be on, on the right way. If we do go to level three again, I think it could be very problematic for especially the private sector. Madikwe River Lodge acting manager Cynthia Tsambo says despite the current challenges in the sector, they are optimistic. We are still having a serious problem with, with this pandemic, but slowly but surely we get in there. We are hoping that since the cases of COVID have dropped, we are going to be back on business very soon. Maybe we are anticipating that maybe 1st of October, the lodges will be back running. Northwest Tourism MEC Kinetu Mosenuk is focusing government attention on reviving the tourism industry to save jobs. We will have to have a discussion with them in terms of the impact uh, on what should be the recovery strategy. As we said, now we have opened. We're assisting them with compliance and importantly also marketing the different destinations and some of their products. But at the same time, we have to go in deep into how do we then promote domestic tourism and maybe see how do we subsidize even that domestic so that we help the industry to, to go back to where it was before. This year's Tourism Month theme, Rural Development and Tourism aims to encourage people to explore tourism attractions and sites in rural areas to boost their economies. I'm Zebulon Maine in Rustenburg, Northwest. At 7.49 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our economics update up next with Tapiso Luhoko. Thanks, Lulu, and good morning. Zimbabwe's largest clay brick and roof tile manufacturer, BETA Holdings, has merged with a Zambian company, Kalulushi Clay Bricks. The merger comes at a time BETA Concrete, a subsidiary of BETA, invests around 10 million US dollars in constructing a factory in Gurumonzi, east of Harare. The factory with annual capacity of 180 million bricks is expected to be completed end of this year and create about 400 jobs. 
More businesses in the tourism industry in South Africa's northwest province are expected to retrench workers due to the impact of the COVID-19 lockdown on their financial sustainability. This emerged at the provincial launch of Tourism Month held at the Madigwe Game Reserve near Rustenburg. Manager Kiabetsu Muremi says about 33 lodges in Madigwe are expected to retrench workers. Out of the five major hubs for aviation, so airports that facilitate aviation, three are in Europe and the Middle East, so London, Paris, Dubai, which really means in translation on long-haul flights you have to fly out to Europe or to Dubai to come back in Africa. And that enabling factor doesn't exist. We need to have more flights within the continent in order to facilitate travel. Former Nissan executive Greg Kelly has pleaded not guilty to charges he helped ex-boss Carlos Ghosn under report income uh, in his uh, trial, which began in Tokyo, Japan. A representative from Nissan, which is also standing trial, said the automaker did not contest the charges. Asian shares looked set to open lower Tuesday. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index futures lost 0.08%. Japan's Nikkei 225 futures were flat after Chief Cabinet Secretary Yoshihide Suga won a ruling party leadership election, paving the way for him to succeed Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. China's industrial output has accelerated the most in eight months in August. This as retail sales grew for the first time this year. An annual decline in fixed asset investment over January-August also moderated due to government stimulus efforts. The US dollar is trading at 379.85 Nigerian Nara, 11.38 Botswana Pula, 107.53 Kenyan Shilling and 19.94 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies in Brazil, one US dollar costs 5 rubles 30. In Russia, 75 rubles 8. In India, 73 rupees 33. In China, 61.81. And in South Africa, a dollar will cost you 16 rand 67. The US dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and 84 cents to euro. Looking at commodities markets, gold is trading at $1,957 and platinum at $957 per ounce at the price of brand crude oil is at $39.67 a barrel. Africa continues to rise and shine. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Well, that wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Luanda Maume, technical producer Dumela Mugwena, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or WhatsApp on plus 277-6300327 or tweet us at Channel Africa 1. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Your Love by Azana. Take care and be safe. Say, Jack,
Ooh. 